Welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Zulika Lebeau, guest editor of Disability Arts Online, chats with artist Kyla Harris about science fiction and her wheelchair Edna. This podcast contains references to ableism and strong language. Hello everyone and welcome to this special edition of the Disability Arts Online podcast. My name is Zulika Lebeau and I am the guest editor for essentially the month of October for Disability Arts Online. And today I am joined by the wonderful, phenomenal Kyla Harris, who is an artist, activist, blogger. No, I'm not actually a blogger. <laughs> <laughs> Filmmaker, writer, any more adjectives you wanna you wanna add to that, Kyla? I don't know, culinary wizard. I don't I don't know. I mean, there there are just so many facets to everyone's personality. Audience members, Kyla has probably never cooked for you, but <laughs> I hope one day you get the chance to sample her amazing culinary skills because they are truly, truly brilliant. <laughs> I have never left her house without my tongue pr- practically exploding with joy. I, I hope that's a good explosion. Oh, yeah, very much so, very much so. So today we're here to essentially talk about you and your relationship with technology oh. and all things sci-fi and fantasy, and I'm going to chime in a little bit. But um, really I want to kind of get started with the theme of this guest editorship which is the relationship that disabled women, femmes of colour, have with sci-fi and fantasy. And I think this is a very important topic that often gets whitewashed and man-washed, if you can say that. Uh, <laughs> you just did. I just did. I it's made a thing. It's you made, thing. It, made it official. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'd love to, to hear your kind of early inspirations from sci-fi and fantasy like what has oh my gosh well okay I I'm not a sci-fi or fantasy writer um and I was at university and I wasn't able to complete a course and so I essentially had to go to summer school at uni and take one of these kind of courses that you don't actually want to take And it was on sci-fi. And I was like, oh, this is going to be ridiculous. Um, And I, one of the assignments was to read H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. And it completely changed my view on um, sci-fi and the genre and how it can be such a incredible tool as a genre to mirror and reflect back society like current and contemporary society and um i loved how evocative um so specifically the time machine it just really opened my eyes like your tongue exploding with joy um <laughs> my my new sci-fi brain exploded with joy and um and i wouldn't say that i'm even a 
diehard sci-fi fantasy lover, but there's just such a wonderful escape within that genre, whilst also being able to reflect back on why um, why we need it and how it's still relevant to to what we experience today. Mm. So you weren't raised sci-fi, you're a convert. Yeah, yeah, hell no. I was definitely not raised sci-fi. No. I was raised, I was raised like Shakespeare. Okay. I was raised like, like American <laughs> literature, like of mice and men. I was raised to kill a mockingbird and very kind of like gritty American uh, literature. And then the English lit that, um, you know, like there was always something about Chaucer and like how he described like boils that that really like that really ignited my imagination. Have uh, boils made a reappearance in your writing since Chaucer? No, just in my nightmares. I mean, like I, I just I'm such a visual person that when I read Chaucer, I really see that boil. I see, I see how ready ready it is to erupt. Like how many there are, the surrounding skin. Like, I'm just, I'm there. I'm there in the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. On the journey with the boils. Absorbed in the boil. Uh (laughs) Um, Well, I think that's a really, like, an interesting point because I was raised sci-fi. So my, yeah, I definitely was raised sci-fi. So my mum, essentially, this is a story that she tells and every time she tells it, she gets tears in her eyes. So she was a kid when... Marvel first started releasing the X-Men comics and she collected all of them. And at that time, that was not really something that girls did particularly at all. And she went away to university and she left them in her room. And my grandmother threw them all away. I mean, you have a horrified look in your eyes. Yeah. Like Like a piece of your heart has just broken crumbled into ash and you've had to sweep it up yourself and put it in the bin it really I mean I have secondhand trauma from this yeah yeah because intergenerational trauma it really is because I mean first of all their first edition they would have been worth so much money but just the the fact of that my grandmother thought they were worthless the x-men were worthless and just chucked them away um and so yeah this you know my mum told me this story practically every time she was annoyed with my grandmother. It's like, <laughs> she did this. <laughs> was, it a, was it a weekly occurrence? <laughs> um, I'd say at least once a month. Once right. a month, yeah. And grew up watching X-Men, which probably I shouldn't have actually been watching at quite a young age, but we watched X-Files together. Oh, okay. And um, saw Terminator at quite a young age mm. and lots of cartoons all of the x definitely x-men cartoons Mm. um and so yeah definitely raised sci-fi it was always around always talking about time machines doctor who and so i'm i'm quite confused by people who aren't raised (laughs) sci-fi it's it's one of those things it's one of those things like confusing species well not now because you've you've kind of come into it but you Mm. know when people say oh i have no idea about Mm. any of any kind of sci-fi reference Mm. I just sort of think what rock have you been under but that's because it's been so much a part of my life since I was Mm. young I didn't know that I didn't know that it was so kind of ingrained 
in your upbringing. I mean, it does make sense. And it does make sense how you kind of transfer and reflect your own experiences onto these kind of sci-fi characters. Mm-hmm. So thanks for making sense. <laughs> Thank you. I, I try. <laughs> so actually, you saying that brings me on to a neat point, which is, is there a sci-fi fantasy character now that you really do kind of identify with? Or Well, it's funny that you say that you mentioned X-Men because I always loved Storm. Mm. Storm was just such a radical boss bitch that always held it down but was also still able to be vulnerable and like that she just looked fucking great like I mean she just also killed it yeah with her looks so I also yeah just going back to to H.G. Wells and the time machine I just really relate to how he really explored like the class divide and the division between the subterranean species and the earthly species and I can't remember what they're called I should have revised H.G. Wells before (laughs) before we started talking well at least the time machine but um but I really relate to this kind of idea of having something happen in the world that changes the course of humanity and dividing it and I feel like that is so relatable today because I feel like there can be a stark division between disabled people and non-disabled people and our experiences of life. And so sometimes it makes me wonder, like, what would that be like if we divided into two species based on disabled and non-disabled? What would that look like? What would, what would our community develop into and be? And what would it feel like? What would it taste like? Like, you know, all of those things. And then and would we be at war with non-disabled people or would we be able to live kind of um, in, in, in harmony? And then there's also the, the divide as well to me of class and, and, you know, currently it's like so many disabled people are, we're just not paid anywhere near the amount of non-disabled people. Um, I can't remember the statistics for that now, but uh, you know, that that creates a huge wealth and class divide as well. So there, are, I guess there are all of these kind of ways that I respect and contemplate um, more of the environments and the scenarios in sci-fi, and less potentially with characters, more with more with the the yeah circumstances. Yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. And o- audience, I have been nodding frenetically to <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to stop myself because I felt like my head was going to bobble off. Um, and I think, yeah, that raises a very interesting point because a lot of people think that sci-fi fantasy, it's not real. It doesn't reflect yeah. anything of real life. Yeah. But when you get shows like, say, Game of Thrones, you get shows like mm. The Walking Dead, you get shows like Doctor Who, um, any of these shows that so kind of capture imagination Mm. of people or hg wells who obviously was hysterically popular in his time Mm. um that captured the imagination i think that idea that it's not real is actually so um i'm just going to say it's quite basic really because (laughs) (laughs) it's quite basic because you're just seeing you know wizards and things and you just think oh that's got nothing Mm. to do with me Mm. but 
10 seconds of a deeper look mm. and actually there's a lot there as you said yeah I think there are also like it's a great way of looking at like archetypes mm. as well and I think that there's something that I like I always identified with Morgana in the kind of Merlin fables and tales and I think that there was always something about this like the archetype of the witch and what what kind of effect they have on on men and <laughs> specifically no there's no way around saying it say um and and their kind of sexual power and that being seen as as a threat and also of just being like kind of Morgana was always kind of cast out from society and always very seen as being kind of you know being othered yeah and I think that there's something that I really relate to with all of those things yeah well she had a disability as well in the, what? yeah so in the Mort de Arthur because I'm also obsessed with Arthurian legend I got got really into it she's not necessarily partially sighted but one of her eyes looks different from the other. Okay. Um, and throughout the book, they just kind of talk about how hideous she is. And if you look at one side of her face, mm. she could be very pretty. If only she didn't have that eye kind mm. of thing. And I think a lot of representations <laughs> of witches, of anybody who is othered, there's always that kind of caveat of like, oh, if only they didn't have that thing, they'd be so great. Mm. And it's, um, I think that's probably why we relate to them the most because they're othered like we are. But also we've heard that phrase so many times. Yeah. Of, oh, if only you didn't have this thing or that thing, yeah. you'd be so perfect. Yeah. Just... You have such a pretty face. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. P particularly if you identify as somebody who's fat or chubby, you've probably heard that a lot. Like, yeah. oh, if only you lost some weight, you'd be really great from... Yeah. yeah it's a pretty horrific um thing to hear but I think it also you you definitely relate to the outcasts and sci-fi is written by outcasts and so it's full of outcasts mm -hmm. yeah that's so you, that's really interesting about Morgana mm. I think the other thing that I, I identify with is the use of and don't agree with because it it is you know it does perpetuate ableist narratives mm. but the idea of um disability as a metaphor mm. like Morgana is seen as a bad person because and and her disability reflects that her a facial disfigurement perhaps or partially partial sightedness yes. reflects um her morally corrupt character and um therefore kind of she deserves to be disabled and that is a negative thing and could not be a positive thing. And, um, and, and disability seen as kind of like retribution. So, yeah. 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 And it was for such a long time. And it is something that I think when we as disabled people are talking about sci-fi, it's, it's such a strong thread mm -hmm. um, throughout the genre, just because it's been such a strong thread in society that I think our, or at least me with this editorship, what I'm trying to do is actually take that back. Yeah. And yeah, say, yeah. no, it, it does belong to us. There is room for us in here. Oh yeah. And yeah. It, it should be ours. Well, it's it's also, it's also like in a way, a refreshing way of, of um, exploring disability 
too. It's 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 out in the open. It's talked about. It's um, a part of you know the X Men is a really good example mm. of like all of the characters having some kind of a disability mm. that is their superpower. Although I, I don't want to go into like an in- inspiration porn superhuman disabled <laughs> disability kind of thing, but you know, but as that it's that it's an attribute. Yeah, yeah, that it that it's an attribute to them. I mean, I know that wider society is afraid of the of X Men, but there are heroes. You know, they're who we follow. They're who we explore. They're who we relate to and connect with. Um, so I think it is like it is ours for sure. Mm-hmm. It's just and you know in in the same way that it's not written by us and should be, but it is ours. Yeah, and it's our history and it's our it's our um, current. And like I was actually wondering, what do you think of Frankenstein? Because I feel like Frankenstein is something that needs to be explored within disability. I think Frankenstein is such an under kind of utilized metaphor. Yes, exactly. It's such an underutilized metaphor. And I think not enough credit, although there is more now, um, particularly with Reddit threads, history Reddit threads and sci-fi Reddit threads where people are saying, oh, you know, the earliest sci-fi novel was written by Mary Shelley and nobody is talking about it. Why is nobody giving this woman her flowers? Yeah. Um, And I think it's such an underutilized metaphor because the first question that came up for me when I read it and, you know, watching all the movies and everything was who is actually the monster? Yeah. I think it's supposed to be like society is the monster. Right. Yeah. Right. First and foremost. And you know, Dr. Frankenstein creates this creature that, mm. again, has he has all these aspirations of the creature being beautiful. Yeah. He takes the most beautiful parts from all of these corpses and mm. meshes them together. And instead of it being beautiful, just like he wanted, it comes out as not beautiful. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting metaphor for how we kind of think about have, you know, things like having children, things like what we, you know, what we create as artists, our flexibility around what we want to happen and what actually comes out, happy mm-hmm. accidents and things like that. But also like in a wider societal thing, our expectations of what is um, beautiful or what is um, the thing to do or the way to behave or mm. the way to look and the reality mm. often don't. For me, in my mind, anyway, they don't ma- match up at all. Ooh. I'm just going to turn towards you for a sec. Okay. Because turning Edna on, turning towards you so I can properly get into, get even more into the combo. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I was kind of not reintroduced. I, I, I came to Frankenstein again recently during the pandemic. There was a national theater production online and it was, um, starring Benedict Cumberbatch as um, Dr. Frankenstein and um, oh, what's that hot guy's name that was married <laughs> to Angelina Jolie <laughs> which one Brad Pitt Johnny Lee Miller Johnny Lee Miller Johnny, Johnny Lee Miller. Miller played the creature ah yeah and it was such an unbelievable production it was so stunning and it was so well cast and so interesting um but it it struck me for the first time of the creature being disabled and yeah. the the creature being um, the the 
the metaphor, like, uh, you know, for not only physically, but also the creature kind of almost being born with a learning disability. Absolutely. And it was so, it was just so shocking to me that I felt like viscerally, I felt that Johnny Lee Miller should not be playing the creature. I felt a disabled person needs to be playing the creature Mm -hmm. and it needs to be put more in front of our face that this, like, that this is our story and our, our narrative as well, because we are so hunted by society Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, often and often killed by society. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm not fucking around with my words with that one because I was going to be nice about it, but no, we are so often hunted by society Mm. and our lives are are at risk because of, because of ableism. Mm. And that's what struck me with the killing of the creature at the end of Frankenstein. Oh, it was so, it was so heartbreaking. It was so heartbreaking. Um, it is yeah. it is a very moving story, and I would mm. say that anybody who has not read Frankenstein mm. to try, because I think a lot of it as well. We think about books written at that time as being very difficult to read, and actually, it, it's not. Oh, it's, it's such not, a page turn. It's a very much a page turn. It's so beautifully written. Yeah, it's so well crafted, mm. and so yeah, yeah. St- it's a stunning, stunning piece of work. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's so many ways that you can read it, but I think the way that you presented it just now, Kyla, is really poignant for obviously this conversation and, and and the wider editorship and just how people, especially now during the pandemic and this whole mask wearing, not mask, not mask wearing, our relationship with technology um, and the track and trace app. Yeah, and vaccines. And vaccines. And yeah. Yeah. And the misinformation I mean, mm-hmm. what people mm-hmm. think about the creature versus how he actually is mm-hmm. and what his actual intentions mm-hmm. are um, just because he's not pretty mm-hmm. is so, you know, and I, I often think about that, about the the kind of the face of disability mm-hmm. and who our representatives are. Mm. Um, and, you know, they're usually acceptable disabled people. yeah. There's this really incredible, one of my favorite pieces of disability literature is by Mia Mingus. And um, she writes, uh, she wrote this essay called Beyond Desirability. Mm. And it's about really embracing ugly and accepting magnificence. Like, you know, she goes on to, to kind of be like, I don't want beautiful friends. I want magnificent friends. Mm. And I think that's what I think of with my disabled friends that, yeah. that, you know, really embrace disability justice. They're magnificent. You are magnificent. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but definitely, I think I would r- much rather be, mag- well, you know, what's that line from Bianca Del Rio? Pretty <laughs> fades, dumb, you know, dumb is forever. Well, I mean, obviously dumb is an ableist <laughs> word, but, you know, that kind of thing about investing in something other than looking good, especially mm. as a woman, mm. is a very powerful thing. Yeah. Very powerful thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you kind of touched on Ed- Edna a little bit when, <laughs> when, you, when you moved yourself around to stare in my boat a bit more. Mm. Um I'd really love to know about your story with Edna 
how Edna got her name. So for people who have not had my meals or seen me in person, (laughs) (laughs) Edna is my power chair. She's very, she's, she's a beast. She's an absolute beast of beauty. Mm. She has, she's looks very uh, wheelchair-y. Yeah. There's no hiding that she's a wheelchair, nor should she hide that she's a wheelchair. Um, I got her maybe eight years ago. Yeah. Eight, eight or nine years ago. And she absolutely changed my life. Like it was so, I've never had a relationship with uh, technology to the point where I've wanted to name a piece, you know, name something, Mm -hmm. name an inanimate object. And yet Edna just presented herself to me and became so much a part of my identity and um, way joy and way of living that, uh, that she deserves a title. (laughs) Dame Edna. (laughs) (laughs) So is she named after Dame Edna? No, she isn't. That was a happy accident. So what happened is basically the first time, the first, I had used a manual chair up until that point for kind of like over 10 years of my uh, having a disability. And I was 26, I think. And I somehow got into this charity, which was like whiz kids, which I did not feel like a kid. And it was very bizarre. I was married and had three stepchildren at the time. Like... I was not a child, but thanks for the free wheelchair. Um, and they recommended that I use a power chair. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd kind of avoided using power chair um, beforehand because I'd had so much internalized ableism. And being Canadian, um, there's such an, and living in Canada, for most of the country, culturally, it's so ableist. Ugh. It's just, it's, it's, it's so based on the physical. Mm. Um, and that as being uh, some, someone's biggest asset, whether it's looks, whether it's ability to chop down a tree, <laughs> what, you know, it's, it's very Canadian. And so I, I had so much internalized ableism that I never saw myself as wanting a power chair, but also in a way needing it because I felt like, oh, well, I can wheel for quite a bit. Oh, but I do need assistance with someone wheeling me whilst, whilst I'm outside. There wasn't this whole idea of you could get a power chair and like you would be independent. And um, so, so when I came to the UK, lived in London and uh, happened upon WizKids being an, uh, as an adult, I kind of went into Edna and it was like this moment of absolute, like just such excitement, such excitement. And I remember... Uh, I was living in Bethnal Green and went to Columbia Road Flower Market. And it was my first trip out with Edna and a bunch of friends. And they were like, oh, we're going to stay out for a bit. And, you know, da, 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 da. and I was like, you know what? I kind of just feel like going home. And I went in Edna, you know, to the flower market, but also back home by myself. For the first time in 15 years, I had been by myself outdoors. And I arrived at my front door and just burst into tears because of the sense of freedom that she gave me and the sense of absolute autonomy and joy and excitement. 
and possibility and potential. And all of these things were wrapped up in my ugly beast of burden and beauty, <laughs> you know? And, and, I, and, I, and I had a PA, an Eastern European PA at the time. And I, uh, she was very, very much involved in my life and a very big support. And, um, at, at a, you know, whilst I was going through an incredibly difficult time. Um, and uh, I said, God, I really, I really want to name her. There's something I just, you know, I was kind of in bed and like staring at Edna lovingly. And I was like, I don't know, what should I call her? And my PA turned to me and went, Edna. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just this deadpan, like Eastern, thick Eastern European accent. And I was just like, yes, yes. And I've never looked back and neither has Edna. Yeah. No. I mean, Edna is, yeah, I would say if she was a car, she'd kind of be like a, a hybrid between a Jeep and a Rolls Royce. Ooh, wow. I love that. Yes. She's also like part transformer. Yeah. Too, because I can use this function, <clears throat> which I think they're no longer allowing on the NHS. Right. Which is raising... Edna. So the seat yes. raises to what I call barstool height. Mm-hmm. I often bring my own barstool to the bar <laughs> um, in the form of Edna. And um, and that's like that was tra- that's that was transformative as well because I was always like, I'm five foot ten. And um, I remember one of the thir- first things that happened after my accident. I was out in a gallery and in my manual wheelchair and my dad wheeled me right in front of a group of people right in front of this painting. And I started ducking and I went, dad, 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 no. Like, what do you do? What are you doing? Because I was so used to being so tall and being the kid at the back of the photo, mm. never at the front <laughs> that I'd had that in, in crowd. I've always had that in crowds. I always kind of, made sure that other people that were shorter kind of stood stood in front. And, and I didn't realize that physical change in, in height because of sitting down. Mm-hmm. And so now when I raise up, it's my, it's my close to my actual height, you know, and that's really important socially. Yeah. And, and I love being able to be at the same height as people and talk to them in their eyes when they're standing. And yeah. So she's just been, transformative in that sense too it's also like a really great power move you know somebody's trying to trying to throw their weight around you can just raise Edna up a couple of inches and then it's like okay yes yes I mean she does weigh a lot as well so I could literally throw her weight around yes and run over people's feet I'm sure you wanted to do that a few times maybe it's like a tank Rolls Royce hybrid hybrid absolutely I mean there's so much in what you just said and that amazing story you described of like having independence for the first time Mm. in a long time I do want to have a caveat around the word independence because Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone is independent and I think independence is absolutely a myth so when I say independence I I do suppose I more mean autonomy yeah yeah because I believe everyone is interdependent yeah I mean that kind of brings us neatly onto it's personal doesn't it oh are we going there yeah we can go there i mean do you want do you want to go there you go there (laughs) you go there this is your your gig this is my gig this is my show well um i remember going to a talk that you and lou mcnamara delivered a couple of weeks ago a workshop a workshop god it was months ago now 
was I guess it was months ago about interdependence Mm. and about its personal Mm. and obviously Edna is a big part of its personal she has her own title card she does Mm -hmm. she does as she should as she as she should as she should because I mean as Edna as herself Mm. yeah Mm -hmm. yes Edna was starring as herself as herself yeah. yeah. <laughs> because nobody else could play her. It's a very hard role to do. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but thinking about it's personal, and one of the things that struck me is both you and Lou have this fascination with reality TV. Yes. I think that maybe you should describe what it's personal is for people that don't know it's personal. Yes. So it's personal is an incredible, would you call it a short film or an episode? I'd like to say both. In its current state, it is a short film, but it also acts as a proof of concept for an episode, episodic series. An episodic series about Kyla and her personal care and um, the difficulties that Kyla had finding personal care during the pandemic, Mm. but also asking Lou McNamara, who is a good friend Mm -hmm. and an amazing filmmaker to come in and train as Kyla's PA for a period of what was it one week mm-hmm. or was it five days? It, it was one week. One week. Yeah. Um, as an experiment to see if Lou, well, both of you, to see if you could train Lou in mm-hmm. that time to mm-hmm. be a PA and if Lou could actually do it. And if Lou could be trained. And if yeah. Lou could be trained, yeah. <laughs> to see <laughs> for Sorry, Lou. Lou. Yeah. <laughs> Love you. Um, I remember hearing you talk about it and you said, you know, both of you said you had such a hunger for reality TV and such a mm. love for it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that really speaks to, in a in a different kind of way, the love of sci-fi and this idea of it being like a hyper reality, like mm, too much yeah. of reality. Yeah. And we what we we definitely consume reality TV because even though it's supposed to be real. It's on the edge of real. There's an uncanniness about it Mm, that is not actually, you know, we know it's not real. We know these fights are not real. They're obviously scripted. Um, I think more staged. Staged, yeah. 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 So I think in terms of it's personal, Mm -hmm. one thing that I'm curious about is how real it got versus how scripted it was. I'm sure I've answered this question before. But for some reason, it's eluding me and it feels very fresh. I think maybe that's just, that's that's time as well. It's been, you know, Prince Personal came out in February and there was a lot of kind of uh, hype around it then. And it's kind of settled a bit, which is great because we took it off the website to try and uh, pursue actually turning it into a TV series. Mm-hmm. So it's no longer available online. Um, I think, well, the, the scenario was and wasn't real. Um, I did have personal care. Uh, It was more of the idea because that's what happened when the pandemic first hit is I didn't know whether I'd have personal care in England or not. And there was this moment, which was probably only a, a few days, but felt like an eternity where I didn't know whether I was going to be able to stay in England and have all of my care covered or if I needed to risk my life by flying to Canada to be with my family 
to have them cover my care and potentially risk their lives if I got COVID as well, because several of, uh, you know, my, my grandparents lived with my parents at the time my grandfather was dying. Um, my dad is a, a very, um, well, he's disabled now. He doesn't identify as disabled, which is another podcast. So, so that in a sense wasn't, was manufactured. I, I had care covered Loretta who is in the um, series episode. Yeah. She offered to stay with me for three months. Wow. Yeah. 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 So I knew that I'd have that care covered and that Lou wasn't actually going to have to cover my care. Okay. Um, but it was the, it was a very real scenario during, for me during the pandemic and, you know, could have been a solution to try mm-hmm. and have Lou, but also not because there's this odd unboundaried, what, what do you do when you are thinking of hiring a friend to do your personal care? How does money change that, that dynamic? How does long hours spent together alone change it? How does someone helping you pee or assisting you with peeing, how does that change your sense of vulnerability and equality? And I think, so we explored all of those things. And I suppose in a way, I don't feel like it's personal is about me. I think it's about disability. And I think it's about vulnerability and equality. And Lou and I are just almost the stand-ins to kind of explore those topics and topics of interdependence and what friendship really means, you know, what friendship truly means. It's such a, an important point that I think a lot of people didn't really think about mm. in, the, in the pandemic is what happens to people who need care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it felt, I think, for a lot of disabled people, even still now, because it's not over. Mm-hmm. And I think for disabled people in particular, it feels really dystopian. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's what I really found interesting is that you and Lou managed to make this slice of dystopian reality TV. (laughs) You know, I want that to be our brand. (laughs) Yeah, but it was fun and it was fresh. It was exciting. It was vulnerable. It was all of the things that you need from a show. And it was I was so engrossed in it and then it was over and I wanted to click. I wanted that Netflix bar to come up, you know, that's like <laughs> loading episode, 10 episodes. Yeah. yeah. And it just didn't happen. I was so, so, you know, please somebody come and fund. It's personal. Please Netflix. Please Netflix. <laughs> him, him. Mm. But I think, yeah, you know, for me, it did feel, it's not directly as a, you know, a sci-fi reality TV show, Yeah. but just because it's located within that very, this very dystopian, but a strange time. I love that. I love that it can be related to sci-fi and fantasy because it does, it is, it is dystopian. It does feel very dystopian. And it felt like we did create our own world. Like mm. it, that the, between Lou and I, and in that, that household, it was so, uh, it was almost a lab for community as well. And what community means, um, and what the purpose of community is and can do. But I, I do think you know, speaking about community and relating that kind of back to what you were saying about the class system in HG Wells, the Time Machine, um, having our silos of community and our different 
pockets, I think is so important because especially now when certain political regimes are <laughs> trying to kill us um, and don't seem to care, mm-hmm. having almost having an underground society where we do take care of each other mm. is so important. Yeah. And I'm I'm just kind of wondering, you know, what what do you think would be the first steps to creating such a Ooh. cryptopia, if you will? Oh my god, I love cryptopia. <laughs> I love that word now that you've presumably just coined. I don't know. I might have read it somewhere. Well, we're going to co-opt it if yes. it does exist Absolutely. for the purposes of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think Cryptopia is based on communication mm-hmm. and boundaries. And I think it's based on openness and equality. And I think non-disabled people are very welcome as long as they adhere to those policies. Right. <laughs> Boom. Boom. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here if you cannot adhere to these very basic rules. Yeah. 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 Because I think being being a crip is so much about communicating and being creative and being really creative with what you have in the scenario that you're in. And uh, that's like a method of survival. And... Um, I think communicating, you know, certainly my life is hinges on communication to communicate what I need to communicate um, what I like and what I don't like, what I, you know, this for some reason it's now going into sex as well, but it's, it's like, that's also, that's also important too, you know, um, cause it affects every, every facet of life communication and I think that as Crips, to be able to communicate to other Crips, there's this level of, well, access intimacy, also bringing it back to Mia Mingus. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's really recognizing another person and seeing them for exactly who they are, what what they are, and how you can support them and they can support you, but without you depleting yourself that's a, such an important point and one of the things when I first met you and I think I, I think I remarked upon this at the time is that you have such an amazing way of communicating what you need and asking for help uh-huh. in such a a wonderful open way and it's I when when I saw you communicating like that, I realized how I had never been taught to mm. communicate like that. Mm. And even when I became disabled, I was not ever taught that I would. You are an ind- you, you were an interdependent being before, and you even more will need people now, and you will need people to understand you, and you will need people to relate to you in a different way and I definitely knew that there was some kind of something going on with my communication because I was not Mm. letting people into that I guess that inner sanctum Mm. to you know to think about Superman that's (laughs) that fortress of solitude (laughs) I wasn't you know and it did feel quite lonely and I think a lot of disabled people 
especially when they're newly disabled or or chronically ill, do feel lonely because we as a society we haven't been taught those communication skills that you've graciously learned over time. I think it's, you know, it's obviously quite an unfair place to be put in. But one of the things that I really found was that communicating through kind of sci-fi it definitely helped in giving people like an allegory. Mm. Going back to Frankenstein, using him as an allegory of, in my case, werewolves as an allegory for my disability definitely helped me to get people on the same page of like, oh, wow, that's really what she's going through. Mm. It's not just like she's got the flu, which I think a lot of people do think, especially with chronic illness. Oh, you're just, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a different breed entirely. So, yeah, I, you know, I definitely see you communicating and how you communicate and I think maybe you should give classes <laughs> <laughs> you know when is the book coming out write a, write a handbook how, yeah, to, how like, to be disabled yeah well just know how to how to communicate properly with people and ask for what you need in a way that isn't you know asshole demanding I want it now but is conveys all of that emotion without being horrible <laughs> well um Thanks. <laughs> and I've been nodding emphatically uh, as well to everything you've been saying before about just like how necessary it is and how, yeah, essential. Like I say, it is so essential to survival, I think. And I think it's really difficult for people to admit that they're vulnerable for varying reasons, a lot of like internalized ableism in society and blah, blah, blah. And even people not really um be okay with the term vulnerable and da, da, da. Uh, so I think that that can stop people from really divulging what they what they need or what they want I think it's a complex subject I think the complexity also comes with it perhaps not being a choice yeah like you don't want to have to to do this and so there's an, an internal resistance to communicating perhaps for people um, because, because there's this idea of unfairness and this idea of why should I have to share this part of me with someone else, which I, which I get and I have as well. You know, I think something that I've realized in the last couple of years is that I have to be professional 24 hours, seven days a week. Mm. And I, I mean 24 hours so that when, in the middle of the night, if I'm calling a personal assistant to help me pee at 4.13 a.m., I still have to be pleasant. And I think that our survival shouldn't depend on our kindness, but I think our survival does depend on communication. That is such an important point. And I think most people don't really think about that Mm. because even me, you know, I don't have to, as much as I am, invested in the disability sphere as much as I am an activist as much as I want to support my fellow Mm -hmm. Crips you know everybody has different access needs Mm -hmm. and you don't know what you don't know Mm -hmm. so until encountering somebody who needs 24-hour personal care you're not going to think wow yeah that person at 4 13 when they have to get up to use the toilet Mm -hmm. still has to mind their p's and q's yeah yeah and and communicate effectively and also you have to wake up and think there's, there's a lot of forward planning involved in that as well because mm. you have to, you have you particularly, I've seen this happen. Mm. You have to get your phone and call your PA, mm. and then your PA has to wake up, make it up the stairs, 
Mm. Um, and there's so, so many processes involved in that mm. mental processes before mm. you even get to just do the job of going to the, yeah, yeah, just yeah. go, you know, have a piss. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, we don't really necessarily realize that it is so important to our survival, not just as disabled people, but, you know, society in general, mm. we definitely overlook it. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that there's such a culture of repression here as well mm. and and um, lack of communication that I think it's something that people really are afraid of. Like there's there's a lot of fear around communicating feelings and needs and wants, and it's not seen as desirable to do that perhaps or, you know, or too feminine, you know, mm. is a massive thing as well, right? Like yeah. communication is is seen as a soft skill, which is often kind of relegated into the idea of awful womanness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, deviant female <laughs> territory. She wants to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thinking about that, you know, I've always wanted to get your perspective or just like a window into your experience of being a disabled woman of colour in a wheelchair mm. and how that is for you on a, on a day-to-day. Oh, fuck, on a day-to-day. Mm. Yeah, it's difficult. It's like I, I, I'm also queer too. Yes. So it's... It's like I have, you know, apart from being trans, I have all of the kind of <laughs> all, the all the intersections, <laughs> um, and an immigrant as well. You yes. know, I'm an immigrant too. Um, I suppose I I have I'm more middle class, so I won't, I don't have a lot of. There's not a a lot of. Um, I'm very privileged. I'm very privileged in in that sense. I've also come from a, a working class background, but because of my accident and getting my settlement, I have I have funds and that has allowed me to have a really good quality of life. And I'm aware that like a lot of my disabled community doesn't have that. And um yeah, I think it's I think it's can be really lonely. I think it can be really lonely. Um because a lot of my time although like most of my closest friends are disabled my day-to-day existence is around white non-disabled women as my mm. personal assistants and as my my partner i love you angie um <laughs> we love you angie <laughs> um and it can be and and while like definitely i think my partner like angie is one of my biggest supports and um, she's so empathetic and such a, uh, she has such a hunger for, for equality as well and understanding and supporting me that I do feel less lonely because of her and because of her, um, her, she just appreciates me mm. and it's just so nice to <laughs> have a partner that appreciates you. Revolutionary. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so it's just, it, it feels like um, there's something, and, and also I, I kind of, I have a bit of a, I don't know if I fully identify as a woman. I'm trying to work out that out because, and I'm just having a lot of conversations with myself and a few friends 
or, or well, and now everyone here in this episode um, <laughs> that's listening to this and all of you strangers, um, because I feel like woman doesn't fully encompass my experience because gender to me is very much constructed Yeah, that I feel like no pronoun really defines like even being non-binary or being con- considered a man like or oh, stri- strictly a woman mm. and none of them really feel quite right and so I'm kind of figuring figuring that out and I'm not sure that there will be anything to figure out I think it's just I might have to sit in this unknowingness for some time and that's okay I mean I, I am very femme I do look very femme and um have an and read as a woman and so I'm treated as a woman so I, I think you know I I was at this event last night and I met a uh queer disabled woman of color who was a wheelchair user and I was like wow you are a unicorn <laughs> we are unicorns together <laughs> two of you in the same room yes sitting side by side wow and um and I I I can't I don't know if I've actually ever met a disabled queer woman of color that's a wheelchair user before and it was it was like I see you Mm, I see you did her chair have a name as well we didn't get that far damn no that is a real shame yeah well if you ever do find out the chair's name I think they should have a play date Just, <laughs> I mean obviously we'll be, we'll be the moms <laughs> yeah. and uh, they'll be the children yeah. that we're taking out to the park yeah exactly yeah why not <laughs> I'm up for it I'm up for it um but that's that's exactly why I asked that question because there are a few wheelchair using um women of color that mm-hmm. I am aware of in the sphere yeah, the, dis- the disability sphere, but not many that I've met or have a friendship with as I do with you. Yeah. And not to say, you know, that kind of sounds a bit collectory. Like I <laughs> That's not what I mean, but I think, you know, obviously... Put me in a cabinet. Yeah, you know, <laughs> but obviously um, the disability sphere is so dominated by white femme-appearing people. I would say white straight cis men you think yeah 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 it is yeah it is a a weird thing there's so much erasure yeah so much erasure well I mean that's where the disability justice movement really kind of stemmed from or spurred from was women and non-binary and trans people um feeling really erased from the disability rights movement um, and not seen. And I feel like that in a, in a lot of spaces that I'm in around um, advocacy. Try not to say too much around those spaces, but yes. Yeah. And, and in the, the work that I do. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think that's a really important point. And that's also, you know, obviously I keep coming back to it, but it is my podcast, so whatever, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> even in, in the sci-fi sphere, you know, Mary Shelley invented the genre, hmm. Octavia Butler, all of these all of these women of colour kind of coming in. Like I think about Michelle Nichols almost every day. Shout out <laughs> to you. <laughs> God bless that you are. Original Uhura. 
Um, and they just kind of, then you have neckbeards on the, like white cis <laughs> neckbeards on the internet, just trying to erase and sanitize this, you know, amazing genre. And also just that in general, the, like going back to disability, the disability movement as well, sanitize and erase mm-hmm. women of color and trans people yeah for really no good reason yeah don't see a reason no reason no reason no. well we know the reason but we we, we, <laughs> we won't say it uh-huh. um so i think we're we're rounding off the hour but i want to end with one last question which is aside from edna mm. what is your favorite piece of technology oh my gosh well i, I mean it's undeniably my laptop Right. It's just my right hand. It really does feel like a part of me. Often a, a an avoidant part of me. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely a part of me. Like I I you know, I live and work on my laptop so much especially. And also like, you know, points of connection through Zoom and stuff. over the pandemic. It was a lifeline and it's how I connect with my family. It's, you know, who are all in Canada. It's um, how I relax. It's how I learn, you know. So I think it's it's pretty integral to to in terms of technology. But I also would love the idea and very very much have had times where I've not been with my phone or my laptop for you know a week and it's been a very happy connected time as well Mm. so um you know I could do without my laptop however I could not do without Edna yeah so no one compares nothing compares as Sinead O'Connor says (laughs) (laughs) Edna nothing compares to you no um, well, thank you both <laughs> so much for, for joining me today on this episode and sharing, you know, so vulnerably and being so open about um, your experiences. And um, is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we sign off? No, I just want to thank you. And I think that um, for those of you who don't know Zulika, she is currently wearing a purple um snake skin uh print dress with some neon tipped long fingernails and her fiery locks are being backlit um <laughs> with trafalgar square behind us and i think uh i think she's just a, a vulnerable powerhouse and i i appreciate you thank you so much kyla i really appreciate that and I'm going to describe Kyla for anyone listening now because <laughs> <laughs> um, Kyla is wearing a full-length woolen midnight blue number that looks cosy and squishy and elegant with two chunky pieces of gold jewellery and her hair is, I don't know, like sort of tumbling around her face and she looks she looks like a witch, really. <laughs> maybe that's your pronoun, a witch. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it is. Okay, well, I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much to everyone at home for listening in and joining us today. Um, Do remember to sign up to the Disability Arts Online newsletter that comes out every week. You can find that on the Disability Arts Online website. 
And yeah, stay tuned for the rest of my editorship. We have some amazing pieces of content coming up for you and I don't want you to miss a thing. So make sure you subscribe. Anyway, ciao for now. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.